Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. Well, there's no greater time for it. We've been talking about what the side effects of hope are. And we've seen over the past couple of weeks that those side effects can be, when you understand that uncertainty like we've just been praying for is nothing new, that you can be a person of stability, that you can be a person of peace. And most of all, we're going to have a read from God's word this morning and see that there is a promise here for who you can be, what should be oozing from your life if you have this hope, and that is that you are a person of joy. It says it clearly here in Romans chapter 5, verse 2b, where to rejoice in the hope of the Glory of God, that's to joy in the glory of God. Then in verse 3, not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Then down in verse 11, but then we rejoice in God. Um, John Stott, he was a commentator and a great preacher, wrote a commentary on this. He said, if ever there is a key characteristic of the believer's life, it's a life of joy. Is it? Do we? Why don't we? Why do we struggle with this? I don't think most people believe that. And I think part of the reason is that life is constantly stealing our joy. Like we've been praying, you look at the situation in Syria, you look at the floods, you look at these things that break into our life, and it's constantly stealing this sense of joy away from us. Um, Frank Commode, he was a British literary, literary theorist, said this. He said, it seems there's a sort of calamity built into the texture of life. To hold happiness is to hold the understanding that the world passes away from us, that the petals fall and the beloved dies. No amount of mockery, no amount of fashionable scowling will keep any of us from knowing and savouring the pleasure of the sun on our faces or save us from the adult understanding that it cannot last forever. See, I think um, Commode, he reflects what you and I can instinctively, subconsciously feel right this morning when we think about these sorts of things. And it's this, it's what uncertainty does to us. Uncertainty makes us become more aware of the fragility, of the superficiality of the joy that we think that we have, right? We realize how quickly this joy that we can have in the things that are around us can just disappear. I discovered this the hard way back in the early 90s. Uh, I was a mad rugby league fan back then. And, uh, and so I, I was a mad New South Wales fan, being from New South Wales. And yeah, that was, that was the era back, that was the era back here when New South Wales actually won games, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're on a winning streak. And, and all I can vaguely remember is I got sent to my room by my mother because I was so dirty that New South Wales had lost the state of origin that I was sour for what felt like about a week. And she got so sick and tired of it that she said, if you're going to continue to be like this, you go into your room. And I was, I was, I was down, I was dirty. I was just, I was not pleasant to be around. And I realized looking back on it, here's the thing. I realized that I, I as a 12, 13 year old, whatever it was back then, uh, that I'd set my heart on New South Wales is the source of my joy. <laughs> now we laugh because we are, oh, you, you 13 year olds, you know, that's what you do, or set your joy on Justin Bieber or celebrities or something like that. And then they let you down and you get totally disillusioned. And, and we laugh, we chuckle, we go, oh, yeah, but we'd, we'd never do that again. Would we? Would we as adults? 
Well, we say that we would never do that again, but we, we learn. We learn. You know, want to know, want to know what we learn? We, we just learn never to look that stupid again. Now, we learn how to be less obvious when we're downcast about the things that give us joy. And so here's the thing. It's a big idea this morning. My thesis is that everyone in this room, Christian, non-Christian, young, old, everyone in this room is doing this. Everyone in this room is setting your heart upon someone or something as your source of joy. It may not be New South Wales. It may still be New South Wales, by the way, in which case we'll pray for you. (laughs) And you've got permission to look downcast this morning. (laughs) But you've put... You put your heart onto something which is the source of your, your daily feelings for joy. And the suction of that heart is so big that, that it's almost like you can't get it off that, right? It's almost like there's an inner implosion. And I use that word really deliberately. You know, what's, what's an implosion? I had to look up the science dictionaries. But an implosion is a deep inner instability where something that should be present in the system is not. And you can think of the classic examples of the ultimate universal implosion is... Scientists, black holes, right? Black holes start with this, this, this missingness, this, this inner nothingness in them that, that just becomes so consuming that the thing can suck up a galaxy. And what I want to say to you is that the reason we claw for joy, right? You know that feeling, the way that someone, if they're, if they're desperate for air, they will do anything to get out from underneath the waves to just take that one last breath. If, if someone is desperate for water, they claw it, they drop to their knees, they, they'll suck any dirty, dirty, dirty water out of the ground. If you are desperate for something and you have to have something, you claw for it like your life depends on it. And my thesis for us this morning is that we, we claw for joy so badly because it's something we have to have. It's something that your soul was built for. There is something missing in the center of the system of your life and your soul. And as a result, it's missing and it's created a mini black hole in your heart. And we look to all sorts of funny things around the place in order to fill that. But it seems like, right, if you've experienced in your own life that our appetite for happiness and for things and for pleasures just seems to be unfillable, right? So how do we fill that? How do we stop the black hole from imploding us inward? Well, we've simply got to know what true joy is, and then we've got to know where to find it. You've got to know what true joy is. Let's talk about, let's talk about what joy is here. And this is it's why we use the picture of the waves for this sermon series, ultimately, as we finish it up this morning. Here's what joy is. Joy is a buoyancy. Joy is a spiritual buoyancy that comes from constantly rejoicing in God. And we talked about that last week, right? To rejoice is to, is to think upon God as the object and to work out the implications of who he is in your life. And so this joy comes from constantly doing that. Second Corinthians uh, chapter 4, 16 to 18, it's a great place. It almost is similar to what Paul's saying here in, in Romans 5, where he's talking about the way that... Uh, that perseverance character character hope is building on one another he says we're down but we're not out we're crushed but not destroyed you know that passage what is that that's a buoyancy he's saying christians get wet (laughs) uncertainty is nothing new we're pushed down but we bob down but we come back up we're pushed we're crushed but we're back up there's a spiritual buoyancy that's happening in other words it means that christians aren't 
unaffected by suffering. It just means we're unsinkable. This buoyancy comes from understanding what we've got in God. So the opposite of joy, and here's the first thing we need to clear up. The opposite of joy is not sadness. And it can't be that because we've seen too many examples over this series of the way that you can see Christians who are sad. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through to 12. <laughs> In this, you, you may have trials of many kinds, but you rejoice because you know that your faith, which is worth more than gold, right? And then look here at what he says in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. He says, not only so, but we also glory. We also rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Now, what is suffering? All suffering ever ever is, is taking away the things that are comfortable to you. (laughs) And here's the place where I think we're going to have to part ways with the word happiness, if you don't mind, because I actually believe that Christian joy is... It's not what the world calls happiness, right? What the world calls happiness is this. What the world calls happiness is, is getting control of your life so that you can keep your circumstances favourable. Getting control of your life so you can keep your circumstances favourable. You know, I looked it up on the internet somewhere. It's probably like happiness.com or something, right? Some place it said five things. Here, here you go, write it down. You're going to get it this morning if you need it. Five things, how to get happy. First of all, Be in possession of the basics. Food, shelter, good health, safety. Second, get enough sleep. Parents, all right, sure, fine. Third, (laughs) have relationships that matter to you. Mm, That's good. Fourth, take compassionate care of others and yourself. Five, you're keeping up here. uh, Have work that really interests and engages you. So get that. Um, get the basics, get enough sleep, have relationships, take compassionate care of others, have work that really interests you. In other words... Get all your circumstances in the right place. (laughs) Now, can you see how utterly ridiculous this is? How the heck does anyone in Syria get those five things this week? Most people, not just in Syria, but throughout the centuries, have never had that. Never had that. We're living in the most peaceful time we've ever had in history as much as the uncertainty seems to make us feel otherwise. But, but here's what was promised to the people, particularly Christians and people throughout those eras. Joy was available to them because Christian joy was never based in their circumstances. It was totally separate for that. So when Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings, by the way, it, it, that doesn't mean you, know, you rejoice in your sufferings, you rejoice in the fact that you're suffering. That's, that's being masochistic. That's, that's sick. That's not right. That's not how he meant it to be. When he says rejoice in your sufferings, what he's saying is you can rejoice in your circumstances even if all the things are going badly. Look at how it happens. Verse 2, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, suffering says that you actually can get more of that hope and more of that joy. And so what it's saying is that this Christian joy, unlike worldly happiness, is something that it can actually grow the more that you think upon it, the more that actually the, it, it can grow, the more that your circumstances get bad. Now this is, hang on, this is off the map. How's that happen? How's that work? That is masochism. That's silly. No, you know, it's, it's like this. Did you ever have parents, mum or dad, who said you were never allowed to eat lollies just before dinner? Right? 
You know, mums and dads, they're not always right. They like to, they like to think that they're right. They, you think that they're right when you're a little kid, but they're not always right. But on this, I think they're exactly right. Because you know what happens if a kid eats lollies just before dinner? You, you get all filled on lollies and you go psycho into, into a sugar buzz. You know, the sugar buzz where you just go crazy. And as a result, you lose your appetite for dinner off the little bit, a bit of sugar. And so that's why mums say you know, you're having a sugar buzz because you're not eating your lamb and your steak and your potatoes and all the other things that you need for your nutrients. Here's, here's the thing. Sex and money and power and success and all the favourable things of life. You know what those things are? They're just giving you a sugar high. They're fleeting. And yeah, they'll... I'll give, you, I'll give you a pump of pleasure for this little moment, but it won't last. And more insidiously, from a soul perspective, is they cause you to lose your appetite for the thing, the only thing that can truly nourish you. And here's how it works. When those things, when, when the sugar rush of all of these pleasures and the comforts of life are stripped from you, all that forces you to do is to leave the lollies behind and focus on having the real meal. And to focus on God and to rejoice in God and to nourish your soul in the way that it was supposed to be nourished. It forces you to sit down and eat your meat and veg and potatoes. And ultimately, as a result, it drives you closer into God and it feeds you and it nourishes your soul. Have you ever had that experience? It doesn't taste nice at the time. It doesn't feel nice at the time. But when it does, it drives you into God and you develop a poise. You develop a power. You develop a strength. You develop a stability because your joy is not based on your circumstance. It's not grounded in your circumstances. It's grounded in God. Here's the second gift that happens. See, joy is not happiness. We've wiped that out now. Joy is not happiness. But how does the Christian joy work? How is it unique? Uh, there's a great passage in John chapter 16, if I can find it because I lost my bookmark. Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he says here, In a little while you'll see me no more. The disciples were mourning and he says, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And he uses this wonderful illustration. He says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when the baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child has been born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one can take that away from you. Now, can you see the wonderful illustration in all of this? Some of us have been blessed enough to be in that situation. I haven't experienced it firsthand, but I've sure heck witnessed it. That dynamic where for a mother in childbirth, there is just an incredible spine-tingling pain that they go through. And it is the most magical of experiences when you watch a mother with a new child and after like 18 hours or whatever it was crazily that I think it was for Kristen by the time she got there with Zach, I couldn't believe that in that instant, the minute that he was brought up to her in that instant, it's like the whole thing just melted away. And the baby is brought up and the mother studies the fingers and the face and the cry and hugs it and says, you're, you're mine. And now in that moment, here's, here's the thing, has the pain gone away? 
This is what's so brilliant about what Jesus is saying about the power and the uniqueness of the Christian joy. Has the pain gone away? No way. The mother in that instant is still right. Like 3.3 milliseconds ago from that first moment, she was in the worst pain of her life. And now it seems to have disappeared. Here, Here it is. Christian joy is such like a woman in labor that the pain has not gone away. No, such is the joy of focusing and dwelling on and adoring in God that the joy overwhelms the pain. It doesn't, it doesn't get rid of it, doesn't brush it over, it overwhelms it. And so it's unique for Christians. We have one foot in either camp. Yes, there is pain. Yes, there is suffering. Yes, there is hardship. Yes, there is uncertainty. But the promise for you is that if you tap into this, it's an overwhelming joy. One that can truly... Melt away the pains that you feel. The Christian joy is utterly unique because it's not happiness. It's 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 not it's not the just the opposite of sadness. It's an overwhelming of that pain into the joy. You know, some of you are practically saying, "Well, how do I get that? How do I get this? This is what yep, that's what I wanted. <laughs> that's that's what I need this morning. How do I get that?" Um. Part of, part of the bad news is you don't just get it. Joy is not an end product, it's a byproduct. Like in any reaction, when you have a byproduct, it, the byproduct exists, but if you go trying to chase the byproduct, you, you can't get it. It's like saying, How do I get that lo- lovely, funny feeling in my stomach when I'm on a roller coaster? How do I, how do I just get that? I, you don't just get that. That only ever happens if you're in the context of screaming down uh, a 90 degree angle on a roller coaster. And it will only ever happen in that context. So for you to say, How do I get this joy? You know, you need to place yourself into the context by which you can get this. And here's how we want to continue to build on this definition this morning of what joy is. The opposite of joy is not sorrow or sadness. We've talked about that. It's not just happiness. It's more than sadness. It's not just sorrow because the sorrow stays there and it's overwhelmed. The sorrow is overwhelmed. The opposite of joy is not sorrow or sadness. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. Did you hear me? It's hopelessness. I, we've talked about this. The Christian, they can rejoice in pain and, and sorrow. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 and then Romans chapter 5 as we keep reading here. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Verse 3 of Romans chapter 5 because we know that the suffering produces perseverance. And so it's clearly saying the reason we can have joy is because of our hope. Now what is hope? Hope is the unseen fallback position. <laughs> The unseen fallback position that we go to, different ways of describing it. I remember being in the surf and I remember that I'd wandered out a little bit too far as a teenager in the, in the sandbank, you know, when you're in between the flags and the surf and you walk out there and you get a bit adventurous because there's a great sandbank happening. And, and then I just drifted off that sandbank, which just seemed to, to just um, disappear into nowhere and just this big channel and a rip and suddenly I went underneath and I'm starting to swim and I'm swimming and I'm swimming and I'm trying to get in between the flags again and I'm getting tighter and tighter and that moment where I figured oh, I'm going to have to put the hand up here and call for the lifesaver right at that moment that I was about to do it in that, that stretching out that you do when you're almost going under the water I could just feel under my, under my big toe just the, the tiniest touch of sand and everything just... Calm down again. That was the that was the the fallback position. 
The Christian hope is to say, no, we're not immune from the waves. We're not immune from those moments in which we feel like our head's gone under here and every now and then. But the Christian hope is that moment where we feel like we're going under and then we touch it and we go, we're not. We're safe. It's an assurance that we're not going under here. We're spiritually buoyant, remember? A better way to put it is, I think of it this way, it's, uh, it's the unseen fallback position. It's like someone going up to Merrill Streep and saying, look, I, I didn't think your performance in Devil Wears Prada was all that fantastic. <laughs> right? Someone goes up to Meryl Streep and says, I, I, I don't think you're a good actress. And, and I go up to her in an office as she's sitting there and sitting at a desk, and as actors obviously do, sit at desks most of their day. <laughs> I just got this vision of, of the Oscars on the back wall. And every time someone's going up to her saying, I don't think you're very, I didn't quite like that performance in the classic thespian way they do. All she's doing is she's just eyes, got eyes in the back of the head for the Oscar. Kramer versus Kramer. Sophie's choice. And she's, you know what someone would be like that had that? You'd have, this, you'd have this wonderful, confident humility, wouldn't you, in the midst of that? Mm-hmm. Thank you. I appreciate the feedback. Like it gives you this stable, constant humility and all of that because you're thinking about the Oscar. You're thinking about, look, as much as you want to say this, I, I, know, I know what my status is like. I know what I've already got there. Now, the Christian does exactly the same thing with something far more grander and far more stable than an Oscar. A Christian comes back to their hope. See, hope is the ability to say, as nice as these things are on heaven and earth, I've got something better. As nice as my reputation is, as nice as my comfort is, this, this is not my real home. For example, 1 Thessalonians 4, it's terrific. Paul says, Christians do grieve, but I don't want you, Paul says, to grieve as those who have no hope. Isn't it interesting? Because he says here that Christians should grieve. Some people don't think Christians should grieve. We've said that, that they should be happy all the time. But here's, here's what Christians do. Christians rub their future hope uh, into their wound like they rub salt into a, into, into a wound. They rub it into their grief the way that someone rubs salt into meat to keep it from going bad. Better than that, you know, it's like rubbing salt into the wound. It stings. It keeps it from going sour. Christians rub hope into their grief so it doesn't make you bitter. It doesn't make you angry. It doesn't make you jaded. It doesn't make you hardened. So the question is then, particularly as we finish this series, what is that hope? What is that hope? Is it just heaven? Is that it? A place that we go to in the sky when we die? You know, I'm sure we've talked this through before, church, but if it's just heaven and a place that we go to in the sky, then all our hope is is compensation, compensation for all that you've lost or may lose in life. But you and I both know compensation is not good enough. We need something more. We need the promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and he has appeared to us. He's talking about having seen Jesus. And so what is this hope? The Christian hope is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're getting to this in Easter. 
I'm going to be talking about this a lot in the next week and a bit, but it's the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's how this hope works for us and how it can work its way into your heart and give you joy. And I don't know, until I find a better way to explain it, I'm going to keep explaining it this way. It's like a couple of years back, I had this nightmare that, that Kristen and Zach had been killed. And so it's one of those mind-numbing, you know those cold sweat nightmares that just seem so real and vivid that you wake up and you're sweating and like your heart rate's elevated and sweat's coming off you and you're in that disoriented phase where you're just, oh man, like where, where I, am I? And you're in that split second of that phase where, ever done that, where you actually don't know if you're still in the dream or if it's reality. And I woke, I woke, I woke up with this elevated heart rate and, and it's all I could do is, is to go and run into Zach's room and to want to kiss him in the middle of the night. And I, I ran back into our room and I turned over to Chris, And I did kiss Chris in the middle of, of the night, 3 a.m. She's like, what are you doing, you bozo? You know, settle down. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's all I could do to just want to hug her and kiss her and hold her and know that she's there. And it, and it was a joy. Now, was it, was it a joy in spite of the nightmare? No, it was a joy because of the nightmare. And because I'd had that nightmare, my joy to hug her and kiss her was like 10 times, 100 times, that if we just had to woke it up in the morning, remember that we're married and made a piece of toast. <laughs> it was a joy because of the nightmare. And here's what I want to say to you this morning. This is what I want you to get this morning. If heaven, if heaven is just compensation for all the stuff that you've always wanted but you're never going to have or all the stuff that you've lost in life, if it's just the compensation for the good things that have been taken from your life, if it's just that, that's one thing. But if heaven is the new creation and the new earth, the resurrected, bodily resurrected uh, resurrection of Jesus, new heaven, new earth, talking, eating, eating fish, touching, conversing, life again type heaven, then it's not just compensation for what you've lost. Then the new heavens and the new earth will make every horrible thing that you've ever experienced in this life nothing but a nightmare. And the great truth for you this morning is this, that such is God's power. Such is God's power that we read in Revelation, not only will be there no more tears and no more crying and no more pain. Yeah, he'll get rid of the evil and the injustice and the suffering that we've seen in the world this week. Not only will he do that and end that, but here's the ultimate act of victory, is that he's going to take all of that pain and he is going to twist it in such a way that the joy that you finally will truly experience in its purest forms will be ten, a thousand, nay, a billion times greater, not in spite of the suffering that you've been through, but because of it. This nightmare will do nothing but infinitely increase your joy. I don't, I don't know how else to explain it. Now, will it solve what you're going through this morning? No. Will it make the pain easier for you this morning? No. A lot of you are saying, look, this stuff feels scary. 
Well, you know what? It's not concrete enough, Sam. Well, I just... I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to get it. You say it's supposed to hit me, and it, it hasn't hit me. And how's that supposed to work? It's not concrete. All I can say is historically, it's got to be possible because we've seen people in the past, Christians in the past, that this was true for. The people had a joy who were singing when they were burned at the stake, or lions were coming to eat them. There's already proof that this has happened historically. So it must be true. But the problem for you and I is how how do we rejoice? How do we feel this joy? How does this happen when there seems to be that sorrow in our life? It doesn't feel concrete. How do I get it? And all I can say as we finish this morning is that C.S. Lewis with this beautiful quote says this. The schoolboy beginning to study the Greek grammar cannot look forward to his adult enjoyment of Sophocles as a lover looks forward to marriage. He has to begin by working for Marx to escape punishment or to please his parents, or at best, in the hope of a future good he cannot presently imagine or even desire. He gets it gradually. Enjoyment creeps in upon the mere drudgery, and nobody could point to a day or an hour when the one ceased and the other began. No one can point to the day in which the drudgery ceased and the enjoyment began. The Christian in relation to heaven and this hope that we've been talking about for four weeks is is as much as the same position as this schoolboy. Poetry replaces grammar. Gospel replaces duty. Longing transforms obedience as gradually the tide lifts a grounded ship. The cross comes before the crown and tomorrow is a Monday morning. A cleft is open in the pitiless walls of the world and we're invited to follow our great captain inside. It's the following him that is the essential point of all of this. It's the following of him. It's the following of him that's the point of all of this. Come to him, find him, rediscover him, and he will lead you to a place of joy that shall never end. Let's pray. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.